and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 21, recorded on October 1st, 2017. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. I'm very happy to say I'm back from New York, and we get to start this episode out with a runs Linux this week. Yeah, the new Atari console is going to run Linux. This thing actually is kind of nice. It's the Atari box, and uh, it's got a wood front, so I'm sold. Yeah, it does look kind of cool and retro. Yeah, yeah. It's got Linux on there, of course. And Atari says it lets them be more open <laughs> because they get to use Linux. <laughs> I, I guess that's uh, probably true only in the sense that they didn't have to create their own operating system. The box draws heavily from the Atari 2600, which obviously uh, hits that retro soft spot for me. And uh, it comes preloaded with, quote, tons of classic Atari retro games. Yeah, but because it runs Linux, it's going to be able to run loads of modern stuff as well, in theory. Yeah, and it's going to have uh, four USB ports, so you could hook up maybe a disk with additional ROMs, a mouse and a keyboard, or other USB peripherals to play with that. But it's got this weird launch that they're doing. The Atari box is going to launch first on Indiegogo in the coming weeks with an unspecified goal, and then later on, in late spring of 2018, it's going to ship retail for around $250 US greenbacks. Uh, so what is it going to launch at Indiegogo at? Hmm. If it's going to be any less than that, then it can't be very high spec, can it? Yeah, and if it's going to be cheaper on Indiegogo, it might be a good time to jump in. You don't have to have a very powerful box to play these old games. You're not going to be running the most latest Dolphin emulator or something like that. Oh, well, yeah, you can play old Atari games on a Raspberry Pi, so you don't need hardly any power at all. But if you want to play modern games, if you want to get Steam going on there then you're probably going to need yeah. more than $250 worth of hardware. I'm, I'm going to be interested to take a look at it. I'd probably, more than even playing the games, would like to just go under the hood and see what distro did they choose, which kernel is it shipping, how did they implement it. It's, it just feels like this came out of nowhere. See what else it can do. Yeah, yeah. And maybe it'll be running Ubuntu, although probably not Ubuntu 17.10, though we did get the final beta this week. Yeah, I had a quick look at it, and... I didn't want to give it too much of a play because I think we should probably do a review or at least talk about the final release, but it's looking really good to me. Yeah, and the thing that I'm happy to see got included is uh, kernel 4.13, which is the version of the Linux kernel that has AppArmor baked in, which is a key part of snap confinement, so now that's mainline to the Linux kernel. And just overall, it feels very polished. All the work that they've put into it has paid off. Well, maybe you'll be upset about this, Joe, because they're officially dropping 32-bit desktop ISO images with 1710. This has been going around quite a lot on Google Plus and everything. People are panicking, but the reality is that it's just the ISO images that they're dropping. They're not dropping the 32-bit archive. The flavors are not dropping 32-bit ISOs. This is only Ubuntu proper, and you can still upgrade to 1710 because the archive is still there. It's just literally they're not building the ISO and hosting it. Okay, true enough, but don't you think that also is going to lead to less users testing this stuff and an overall degrading of the 32-bit experience? Well, is anyone really testing it anyway, is the, the question. Isn't it just a kind of waste of resources at this point? I mean, fair enough, Lubuntu or Zubuntu even, uh, or even Ubuntu Mate would work reasonably well on an old 32-bit machine, but the server makes sense for 32-bit, especially if it's containerized or whatever because it's smaller. But I just can't see any use case for 32-bit full-blown Ubuntu desktop because the only machine I've got that's 32-bit only 
it'd just be dog slow to run GNOME on that. So I, I just don't see the issue. I think that's a good point. And uh, like you said, there's going to be other ways to get 32-bit support. And uh, I would not be surprised if the container use case keeps 32-bit packages alive for quite a while. And other things like gaming will also require 32-bit libraries, which you'll still be able to install on your 64-bit distribution. Yeah, and also, if you really want to have full-blown Ubuntu, you can just get the minimal or the net install and build it up that way. It just means you won't have a 32-bit live image. Right. Yeah, and let's be honest, that's how real hardcore Ubuntu users do it, right, Joe? Right? <laughs> well, I do occasionally, but uh, yeah, yeah, not yeah. normally. Speaking of hardcore, you know, the KWIN project is pretty hardcore, and they're looking at the future and saying, hey, let's see if we can't get KWIN and Wayland running without any X tentacles. No X Wayland support, no X dependencies. Well, this is surely what they need to do regardless, right? And now they're just finally getting around to doing it. Yeah, it is sort of funny because it's like fixing the barn door before we even have cows in this particular case. But the general idea here is getting KWIN X11 free so that way the code that isn't loaded cannot interfere, which is a direct quote from the KWIN maintainer. The whole idea here obviously is to reduce exposure to attack surfaces, code dependency problems, legacy code, and build towards the future where we're Wayland 100%. Now, Having just sat in a room full of people that are hacking away on Wayland issues, I feel like that future is further away than most of us think. It's not necessarily going to be in the next year or so. But good on them for uh, working on this problem before it's really even necessary. Yeah, well, someone needs to lead the way, and it's good to see that it is happening uh, in KDE land. One of the most surprising stories this week was that the LTS kernel is now going to be supported for six years instead of two which is just a, a massive difference. Yeah, I'd say this is the story that I was most pleased to see this week, too. This is going to have really great benefits, and it's going to have a few downsides, I suspect. Traditionally, the long-term support kernel was supported for two years, and now Greg KH will be maintaining it for six years. Beginning with the current 4.4 LTS cycle, it will be extended for six years. The current 4.4 LTS cycle, underscore that for a moment. Uh, meanwhile, Linux 4.14 is the next LTS that's currently being worked on that would then be supported until 2023. That's a long time. Is the world even going to still be going by that point? But at least our Android phones will benefit from this, eh? Definitely. This is obviously a move that I think was influenced by Google and Google's Project Treble, which we have talked about on this show. When we were talking about Project Treble and doing research, I seem to re recall coming across a discussion thread that implied that Google was campaigning upstream to the Linux kernel community for this change. I don't know if this is made solely for Google, though, because I could see this having big ramifications for business, especially in the server and in the media production space. That's the positive side, obviously, and the positive ramifications for Project Treble. I am concerned that this will cause some system-on-a-chip manufacturers to essentially sit on their hands and not bother updating patches and kernel drivers for anything other than the LTS releases, which could cause quite a bit of problems with the pace of standard Linux kernel development that most distributions end up shipping. But surely the changes that you're talking about there don't really affect most of the distros that are shipping, for example, x86 versions of Linux, because that's all drives and stuff that's just not even relevant. You could be right on the x86 side of things. I'm not sure if this will have a huge impact either way. I'm thinking primarily about the ARM side of things, where new devices come out that support some new feature or some new radio, and they require enablement via a newer version of the kernel. 
but all of the other system chips in that device are dragging their feet with the software. That could cause some sort of weird backporting or forking of the kernel for these devices. I guess that's sort of an a straw man argument, so this is going to be one of those wait-and-see issues. So it's not really worth getting all that worked up about, but when it comes to these system-on-a-chip vendors, I've learned to expect the least. I suppose, but maybe it will lead to more standardization, because if you've got drivers in the kernel, and as you say, if you've got one device that needs newer firmware, then maybe they won't ship that newer device. Maybe they'll ship something that's more tried and tested, and you'll end up with more standardization, and it'll just be cheaper for them to work alongside all the other OEMs to have a kind of more standard um, set of components in these devices. That is, you are a communist, Joe. You are a communist. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I think that's, that could very well be true. Uh, it's If only there was some sort of mechanism where the code could be shared and then everybody could benefit and contribute back to it. That might that might just make things work out. Mm. But back to the x86 side of things, the first thing I thought about was Red Hat and RHEL because at the yeah. moment they are supporting the kernel for like 10 years and having to pay people for that. Right. Well, it's, this is going to save them a bunch of money. Not just Red Hat, SUSE, Canonical, any distribution that's maintaining a quote-unquote long-term supporter enterprise kernel could switch over to this branch now and then just apply their minimal set of patches on top of it. It's going to be great for them. Yeah, I do wonder about hardware enablement and stuff and how that's going to work. But yeah, I think it will be ultimately at least a little bit less work for them. LinuxAcademy.com slash Unplugged. Go there to support the show and sign up for a free seven-day trial to a platform that is designed to teach you more about Linux and open source technologies and all of the quote-unquote stacks on top of that. And I guess when I say stacks, I mean things like AWS, Azure, OpenStack, and of course all of the individual components of Linux itself. Linux Academy gives you self-paced in-depth video courses on every Linux cloud and DevOps topic. One of the things that's really valuable is they have hands-on scenario-based labs that give you experience on real servers and instructors, real human beings, that are ready and available to help you when you get stuck. And if you're going for certifications, they have great courseware on that. They have mobile applications so you can learn on the go, comprehensive study guides you can download with you, virtual servers they spin up on demand, and much, much more. It's a platform to learn more about Linux. You get it. They also have public profiles to demonstrate your achievements. It's a great way to learn more about Linux and advance your career. linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Go there to sign up for a free seven-day trial. Support the show and go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Nextcloud's done a whole bunch of work on integrating end-to-end encryption. They're working on a new version of the Nextcloud client software. It's in preview right now, and it's going to be a final feature in Nextcloud 13, and it's client-side encryption. Yeah, this is potentially massive for them, especially in enterprise, where that stuff is really, really important. Okay, as a home user, it's nice to have encryption. In the enterprise, it's absolutely essential. And they really go out of their way to say this is end-to-end encryption done on the client side. There's no middleman, no web interfaces that can get compromised, no server-side decrypting that's possible without the client keys. And the solution works on a per-folder level. They say it does have a server-assisted but fully secure key management system with support for creating an offline administrator recovery key, which could be kept in a physically separated location like a safe. And this is neat, Joe. Users get warned if that recovery key is ever enabled. Yeah, that is very nice. Obviously, this is something that's going to need a lot of testing, and they also make it clear that this is in preview mode right now, and they're seeking feedback. I want to try this, though. I really want to give it a go. 
encrypt a few folders and just try it out for a while because this is exactly the kind of feature set we want from Nextcloud. And it's something that Dropbox simply can't offer because of their business model. Yeah. And, you know, I really like the attitude that they have with this. They say, security being as hard as it is, we expect some harsh criticism, but we look forward to the constructive feedback, which will enable us to improve and fine tune our design and implementation. They're basically saying, look, there's people out there who know a lot more about this than us. And please try it out, poke holes in it and tell us what we've done wrong. Rather than having an arrogant attitude of we've done this great thing. You know, I, I really like to see that humble attitude. Yeah, they've integrated support for an audit log as well, which is a great feature when you're building a feature set like this. They also have a revoking key system. Again, a great feature to have built in from the very beginning. This really looks like it could be a hit. All of the basic stuff you want in your first implementation is there. And now it's just a matter of refining it and making sure it's a solid implementation. I've invited Joss and Frank from Nextcloud to come on next week's, or I guess this week's, Linux Unplugged to tell me about it because I've got a few more questions specifically about the administrative side of things. And then I think I'm going to get my hands on this and I'm going to deploy it myself. I look forward to listening to that. Yeah, that should be good. So let's talk about Microsoft. They've been in the news a lot over the last week or so. Well, in fact, over the last few years, really, they've been creeping more and more into the Linux space. And you've got a few small things like SQL Server is now finally available for Linux. We've talked about that when it was announced. Now it's fully out there. You can deploy it on your Linux server. And also there's a new Skype for Linux preview. But for me, the bigger story is Microsoft becoming a premium sponsor of the OSI, the Open Source Initiative. Microsoft are really embracing, aren't they, the, uh, the Linux and open source world, or at least seemingly so. Indeed. So for some context, the OSI launched in 1998. It is known for taking a largely pragmatic approach to open source, and it advocates for open source in business and government. They also review open source licenses, uh, which are often specific to vendors to ensure that they conform to community norms and expectations. So now Microsoft has become a premium sponsor of this organization. They've been working together for a couple of years. When Microsoft announced some recent licenses, they they tossed it over to the OSI to make sure that they were legit, like back in like 2005 even. And now as a premium sponsor, Microsoft's joining the likes of Google, HPE, Adblock Plus, GitHub, um, a bunch of others. You know, they are technically a higher level sponsor to the OSI than Red Hat, the Linux Foundation, Mozilla, or HP themselves. <laughs> and that is surprising, isn't it? That the Linux Foundation are not a bigger sponsor. Yeah. You know, Joe, I, I've been to quite a few events in the last couple of years, and Microsoft has been at all of them in a major way. And they are either there funding for the community get together, or they're there with a booth, or they have their developers there coordinating with people. Obviously, I just got back from the Ubuntu rally, and there I met one of the Skype for Linux developers, and we were talking about uh, different packaging solutions and talking about a particular bug that was affecting uh, the current LTS of Ubuntu. And he's a Linux user. He's a, he's a, he's a Linux user. He's not a Microsoft uh, Windows guy that's developing in a Linux VM. I mean, this is just his world. He's, to him, it's not a, it's not, there's no OS war to fight. He's just making a product for Linux users. And I think Microsoft is working at that level in a lot of different areas in the organization now. They've sort of lost the passion for the desktop war. Yeah, I mean, are Microsoft a different company from the, the company of old with Bormer saying that Linux was cancer and all that kind of stuff? Is it really 
a totally different outlook from the company or is there something more sinister going on because that's what some people seem to think you know whereas looking at it from a pragmatic point of view and a kind of realistic business point of view the the war for the desktop as you say they don't really care about that anymore they care more much more about the cloud and stuff and as long as azure is doing well then they're fairly happy and if that means having to embrace linux then they're just going to have to do that well outlets like tech republic debate if microsoft is going to love linux to death and they throw headlines around about shuttleworth and stallman disagreeing about microsoft and linux in the background, while that conversation's going on, Microsoft has learned how to make money on Linux. And they're one of the few U.S. companies that genuinely makes a big profit on Linux. I mean, just look at the math. They've now joined the Linux Foundation. They've now joined the OSI. All major Linux distributions can now run on Azure, including Debian, Red Hat, Ubuntu, etc. And Microsoft is sending developers and money to all of these open source events to get their developers sitting next to other developers creating open source code. It's it's one of these situations where this debate, this discussion we're having doesn't match the reality of the marketplace. Just like the debate between Unity 7 and GNOME never really matched the fact that in the marketplace, millions and millions and millions of Ubuntu machines are being sold. And they don't care what it ships with. They're just getting their work done. Meanwhile, in the tech sphere, we have these conversations constantly about these aspects that we find interesting but don't actually impact the marketplace. And you look at this, they're not, Microsoft's not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. They're doing it because they figured out how to turn a profit by working like this. And I suppose everyone benefits in a sense. It's just very hard for me to accept that everyone can benefit in the Linux world from Microsoft. Because uh, just the, the history, you know, it, that history is so... Um, they're just the enemy, aren't they, traditionally? And if you look at it from a realistic point of view, you're right. But I think that as a Linux community, it's it's just so difficult for us to look to Microsoft and see anything other than the evil company who called us cancer. Mm -hmm. But I suppose we have to ask ourselves, what did we expect to happen if Linux won? And Linux has won the server space. This is exactly what would happen. And I don't think Microsoft's really competing on the desktop space with Linux anymore because they probably view the Mac as a much bigger threat. And so their desktop efforts now are focused on their Surface hardware, which is more of a direct competitor with the MacBook line. And on the server, they're playing ball because that's how you make money in the server space where Linux is won. Well, except how do you explain um, WSL, the Windows subsystem for Linux, if that is not them being worried about Linux as a competitor on the desktop. Ah, uh, but that's just about creating web apps, which run on Linux servers. It's really about the developer's toolchain matching what's on production. So if they have Ubuntu systems, they want to have Ubuntu in the runtime on Windows. It's not so much about going after Ubuntu on the desktop. Isn't it, though? Isn't it trying to keep people in Windows? Uh, if you're, for example, dual booting yeah. for your games and maybe for exchange support or whatever in Windows, but then you're doing your development in Ubuntu or some other Linux distro, yeah. or you're thinking of getting a new machine and you know you buy it with Windows and then you think, well, I've got the subsystem, that's all I really need, why bother setting up that other partition? I bet you that's a nice benefit to the strategy. 
but I don't get the sense that that's the core strategy of the Windows subsystem for Linux. If it was, there would probably have been more of an emphasis on running GUI applications, or they would have bundled a Wayland or X Wayland server or, or an X11 server. But is that not coming down the road? It really should if they're not working on that. I mean, it seems like a good strategy to me. If you've got the subsystem, you might as well take a few shots at your competitor if you can. It's already there. <laughs> if I were Microsoft, I'd be doing it. Yeah, but would that maybe upset the likes of Ubuntu, you know, Canonical, if they've worked hard with them for just this one aspect of it that that's kind of, as you say, not a direct competitor on the desktop, for then suddenly to be able to run GUI apps and potentially even a desktop environment. Yeah. At that point, you've got basically a, almost like a dual boot system without needing to dual boot. You know, I had that same thought, and I asked around a little bit, uh, and I, the sense I've gotten from 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 people at Canonical, uh, you know, do you consider this a threat? Are you worried about this taking away Ubuntu on the desktop? You're doing all this work now, and then Microsoft. The sense I get is no. Now, the reason why people choose to run Ubuntu on their desktop and on their workstations is because they're sick and tired of using Windows. And it's it's just, they're done with it. And they want something that's just going to let them get their work done that matches production, and that's why they're choosing Ubuntu. And until Windows is no longer Windows, they don't, they're not really concerned about it, doesn't sound like to me. Maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong. Well, yeah, I would never choose Windows if I... <laughs> could if I had the choice. And while Linux continues to exist, I would keep using it. But then I'm not a developer. So I don't know. In my mind, the typical developer plays games as well in their spare time. Maybe yeah. that's a stereotype. But yeah, maybe. Know, and yeah, I could see it. And that the fact is that with Steam, okay, you can get a few games running on uh, on Linux, but just gaming is better on Windows. And so th that's just what I have in my mind of who the subsystem is aimed at. It's aimed at developers who like to play games and have a Windows machine, and it's just trying to pull them into that Windows world full-time. I don't think you're wrong. I think it is partially that. But more so, I think it's about freeing developers from being locked inside Linux VMs all day and getting them back inside their desktop and reducing the overhead of having a bunch of Linux VMs. And I think that's why they're working on being able to run multiple different Linux distributions in windowed mode. So you have SUSE next to Ubuntu, just like you would if you're doing VMs. That's what they're targeting right now. Could see it going that direction. Or I could just see them adding features that makes it more and more competitive to the Linux desktop. But I think it's more so about that developer who's stuck in the VM. That's my take on it. Yeah, I think realistically, you're right. I think that there are far fewer dual booters than I like to think when if you've got a decent laptop with loads of RAM, you're just going to be running a bunch of VMs. So yeah, I suppose you're right. That takes away those VMs and the overhead, as you say. So maybe I'm just dreaming. And besides, while we're figuring all of this out, Bill Gates is switching to Android. And that's... <laughs> Yeah, that was uh, quite a big story in some parts this week, wasn't it? Yeah. But for me, I just I can't get too excited about that. I mean, he's not going to use an iPhone, is he? At the end of the day, I suppose not. And so, what, what's he? He's not going to use what? What's the alternative? He's not going to use a, a sailfish phone, is he? I was going to say he could switch to BlackBerry, but then I realized those run Android too. So you're you're right. He's pretty much stuck. Maybe if we went and asked him, Cook, they give him an iPhone X early, and then he could at least have a status symbol. If you want a status symbol, you should have a new episode of Linux Action News in your pod feeder every single week. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get your status symbol, a.k.a. the show. Yeah, and go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact if you want to get in touch with us. 
And also, please consider supporting the network and all of our future work over at patreon.com slash jupitersignal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later. Bye.